Welcome to another episode of the Safety Third Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Reynolds, and we have with us today again, Stephen Marks. Uh, welcome, Stephen. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Where are you right now, Stephen? I'm in Richardson, Texas. Richardson, Texas, in your new apartment, right? In my new apartment. Uh, some people call it the Hawaii of the South. It's beautiful here. In Richardson? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's your address? Uh, <laughs> I'm we, can just off, we can talk offline for that. Talk offline about it. I'm just seeing how far the boundary goes. No. So uh, co-host Stephen is here. And we also have a special guest joining us from across the planet. Uh, his name is Michael Fasolino, and he is a certified functional safety engineer. He also has a quite interesting background in software, in not only safety critical systems, but also mission critical systems as well. And so we're going to get to talk with him today a bit about what it's like to develop software for safety systems and how is it different from developing software for what I'll call a regular system. Uh, what are some of the pitfalls that you encounter there and that sort of stuff. So I think it's going to be a good episode. And I want to say hello, Michael. How are you today? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And where are you joining us from today? I am sitting just outside of Madrid, Spain. Madrid, Spain. And are you visiting or, or what? I live here. Actually, I've been here for about four years, um, enjoying the culture and the food and all the good stuff. Yeah, that's great, man. Well, um, welcome. Thanks for joining us. I see it's sunny in Madrid. Where I am, it's pretty cloudy, so it's nice to live vicariously a little bit through you. Um, good. So, I, I, you know, without further ado, let's get started, and I'd Let's, uh, you know, get to know you a little bit and understand who you are. So uh, just wanted to check and see where you wanted to start. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I was born in Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, my dad worked in the telecom industry and we moved to Texas outside of DFW where um, at nine, I guess, when I was nine. And so grew up in Texas. Um, and I married a Texan, and she insists that even though I grew up in Texas, I am not a Texan. I need to I need to have been born there. So, just to to make it clear, I am not a Texan. Yeah, it's a it's a big lament of my life actually. So all of my children were not born in Texas. So uh, uh, that, so technically none of them are Texans. So though my wife and I were. And when you moved to DFW, you said the DFW area. Were you by chance in the Hawaii of, of the South in Richardson or were you? I didn't move directly there, but I did spend a couple years there um, as I got older. So I agree. Richardson is is the Hawaii of the South. <laughs> <laughs> Mahalo, bro. Yeah. Mahalo, bro. <laughs> no, that's good. So, okay. So you're, you're, uh, your dad was in telecom. Was he a technical person as well, too? Or uh... yeah, he's he's an electrical engineer and uh, worked a lot with. Um, I think he didn't actually change jobs his entire career, but worked for five or six different companies as they got bought out over the years. Ah, okay, okay. So, so a, a long obedience in the same direction, I guess. Right, staying in the same the same focused path his whole life. That's respectable. That's good. Yes. Yes. Um, Okay, so you you uh, you got started up in Virginia, but then you uh, grew up mostly in North Texas. And what about your family? Big family, little family? 
Yeah, I come from a pretty big family. Um, there's five of us boys and a couple a couple of girls, and so there was always a lot of a lot of stuff going around at the house, and a lot of wrestling and um, a lot of figuring things out. My dad's pretty handy, so we were always fixing stuff, and we always had old vehicles. So it was pretty much every weekend we would spend underneath one vehicle or another and helping neighbors with their vehicles and friends, and so I grew up with my hands all over. Um, mechanical stuff and woodworking and uh, yeah, I grew up doing engineering kind of at a really practical level yeah. and then when I I mowed lawns for I guess like 12 years all the way through college and I I love being outside sweating and working with my hands and so I was like I think I want to do this for the rest of my life and my dad was like I don't know if you want to do that when you get older you're going to wish you kind of had a desk job so I actually studied double E in part on his recommendation okay so you went uh you went to school to study electrical engineering and uh where was that at the same school Stephen studied at um so it's pretty amazing school UTD yeah UTD whoosh whoosh T-Mock right so uh I was actually at UT Dallas the other day and somebody walked in who knows both Michael and me and said look at this and there's I guess an entire I didn't know UT Dallas has a magazine that they put out uh, it's, it, you know, it was a quality, respectable magazine, but it had an entire spread on the Fasolino family on Michael Fasolino and his brothers and his sisters. And like, it was multi-pages. Like it was, it was a pretty big deal, uh, about, about you guys. So what, what was, I assume you had, they had your permission and you knew it was going on. So what, what, what was all that about? Yeah. Um, I don't know where it got started. Um, but at some point, somebody decided it would be interesting to do a article on us because my two sisters and four of us boys um, got our degrees there at UTD. And my younger brothers all have their master's degrees from there. So um, there has been a Fasolino kid going to UTD for the last um, 25 years. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's, yeah. that's half the life of the school. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. 25 years ago, the school looked totally different, right? I mean, Michael, you've seen this. You this when you went there is probably, you know, barely anything, right? It was radically different. It was a basically a commuter school, and so I took most of my engineering classes at night because they didn't offer them during the day. And double um, E was the only degree they offered um, in engineering. It was the only engineering discipline they offered at the time. Yeah, it is. It's. I think all universities have grown quite a bit, unless they decided intentionally not to, right? But uh, UTD seems to have really grown. The story I heard about UT Dallas was that it was first started by Texas Instruments. It was started as a graduate school before it was an undergraduate school, right? And I think that's really unique. I don't know of another place that was started. Your first students are master's students, right? So... Yeah, and some of those TI legacy folks really they they built the school. They invested a ton of money in it. Provided a lot of money for scholarships that brought in some pretty um, brilliant folks. And kind of, I, I feel like put the school on the map back twenty five and thirty years ago. I think they did because I heard another statistic. I feel like it's turning into an advertisement for UT Dallas, but uh, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but uh, they. I heard a statistic. So there's the University of Texas system, which 
you know, if, if you're not from Texas, you probably don't want to hear anything about it, but I'll tell you anyway, right? So Texas has like 25, 30 million people in it, right? And there's all of these different university systems, the Texas A&M University System, the University of Texas System. And basically over the decades, those two schools, Texas A&M and UT have acquired other colleges and universities and then developed those programs into something, you know, bigger, new or whatever, uh, and integrated them into their overall program. So I heard a statistic the other day that for undergraduate students, the University of Texas has more national merit scholars than the rest of the University of Texas system combined. So that's UT Austin, UT El Paso, UT Permian Mason, UT Pan American, you know, all the other UT schools combined have less national merit scholars than UT Dallas. That's pretty legitimate right there. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. And, and all of them put together have less than UT Dallas. So it's pretty good. And I know they have done a lot, like you said, of funding into research and bringing in top talent. They've got world-class people there. So it's, uh, it's amazing what you can do in a couple decades if you really focus on it and develop it out. Right. So, yeah, it's super cool. So that, that's why, okay. So, um, they did the spread on you and your brothers and your sisters and your parents must be so proud. They're probably going to get that framed a bit. Right. Especially after all the money they spent at UT Dallas. <laughs> they should have a building named after them. Right? There should be a Pasolino uh, study hall. I'm going to do it next time I'm on campus. I'm going to print out a piece of paper and put it on a room and call it the Fasolino conference room or something. We'll see if it sticks. They paid for that. Yeah. They have your well, blessing. We did get a lot of scholarships, so I'm not sure it might end up getting taken down. <laughs> uh, okay. I won't do that then. I won't do that. Then. Okay. So you're at, um, you're at UT Dallas, you study double E, uh, and you're still mowing lawns. Right. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you decide you're going to get a, uh, you graduate, you're going to get a job. Did you go straight into the workforce after you graduated or what happened? I did. And so I graduated in December of 03, um, right when the telecom, um, the entire industry busted. And so there was like 10,000 um, highly qualified double E's um, on the job market looking for jobs. And so there, a lot of the folks I graduated with were having a hard time finding work. And I had a friend that offered me a job in software and I figured, oh, I, I enjoyed the two C++ classes that I took as electives in my um, undergraduate. And so um, I took that job figuring I'll move back into EE after that. Um, but I have worked in software ever since. And that it was actually um, in telecom for the first couple of years that I worked and got exposed to some pretty cool stuff related to the production support side of a voice over IP product that was way ahead of its time, probably so far ahead that it it's the reason why it didn't sell. People just weren't mm -hmm. ready to, to jump on yet. Yeah, that's a, so 2003, if you're working VoIP stuff, then, I mean, we still had a lot of landlines in place. You, that's an interesting thing you bring up about timing of a technology. Um, Functional safety is kind of that way. <clears throat> Ten years ago, you know, it it, it 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 the market wasn't quite ready for it the way it is now. Now, like you can't turn around. Every product that's developed has to have a risk assessment, has to have these sort of things. But ten years ago, it just wasn't really there. And we actually, I was at another company. We tried to launch a service, and it just didn't get traction because it wasn't 
the market demand wasn't there. So it's the same kind of thing you just talked about with the VoIP technology right now. I mean, we're pretty much talking on voice over IP right now, right? So uh, it, it, it's definitely taken off now, but the market timing wasn't right. Okay, so you did that for a while and then and then you stayed there or, or what did you do after that? Yeah, so it turned out that the reason why the company was able to hire was because the CEO was cooking the books. And so I decided what? that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Is it public knowledge or are you giving us a, a, a whistleblower no, right now? No, no, no. This is public knowledge. The, the company no longer exists. Um, so there was everyone I was working with, they were still giving really generous severance packages. And so everybody was trying to get laid off. And I was like, oh, no, this is not a good place for me to learn as a young engineer. And at the time, the the Department of Defense was really had a good uptick. So I was able to jump onto a, um, a large company in the, the North, um, North Texas area and worked DOD for the next 12 years. Okay. The North Texas has a lot of uh, defense companies, so we, we can leave it ambiguous like that. But uh, can you talk about what types of things you worked on while you were with said company? Yeah, I worked a lot with embedded programming, um, especially on sensor systems. Um, got to work on some pretty cool, uh, a couple highly safety critical systems um, that was really interesting to get to see kind of how a traditional waterfall model works and that, that V model that's so important for us in the, the functional safety world. Uh, I got to really walk through that um, with a couple different um, programs and then also had some really um, cool uh, demo type um, positions where we were developing a architecture for uh, vehicles that would take um, uh, all different kinds of peripheral information from different sensors, from the vehicle itself, from uh, different communication mechanisms, and it would integrate that all into a common um, generic uh, communication bust, bus and then put it onto a um, graphical user interface that we had designed. And so we would get a request from the customer or from our marketing team to um, put together a add a sensor into that suite. And within a couple of weeks, we could take something brand new that we had never used before, create the adapter for it, plug it into the whole system, and then be out in the field demonstrating it to the end users. And so that was a, a really fun experience, kind of taking a look at architecture and having to think a lot about how do you create an architecture that can be modifiable and can um, withstand changes to technology and things like that. It was, it was a lot of fun. Michael, I've got a question for you. Um, yes, sir. So you went from super practical engineering when you were a kid growing up, right? Mowing lawns, fixing cars, to then I assume a pretty theoretical uh, degree set in EE um, uh, in university, and then back to what sounds like super practical, um, you know, solving a real problem for a real client. Can you talk about what that was like going through? That's something that I've kind of struggled with in the university system of what it was like to go from practical to theoretical and then, you know, oh, wait, that's not really how the real world works, right? Um, can you talk about your experience in that? 
Yeah, I, I became really excited when I started studying um, calculus um, because I had looked at this tree of the different um, classes I would have to take one after the other. And I realized that calculus was like there was seven or eight classes that came after that. So after I started learning some of the basic rules of calculus, um, I taught them to my um, younger brothers at the time that were like three and five. And we'd go to uh, like a social event and there'd be an engineer there. And I would ask my brother to do a derivative or something like that. And they would do it. And the, this engineer that had 20 years of experience would look at me and say, I don't remember how to do derivatives. I'd be like, oh no, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I studying this? And it's the prerequisite for everything else I'm going to be doing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a little bit, I would say, frustrating to me being so practically minded, having to spend so much time at a theoretical level. Um, and I feel like what would happen kind of, we would go through the entire semester and like the last day of class, the professor would say, okay, now that you know all this theory, um, it actually doesn't work like this in the real world. There's other things you have to know because it doesn't actually work like this. This is the theory behind it, but, but it's too basic. It doesn't actually take into account how everything worked. So I, um, I like to say that one of the most important things I took out of university was that theory doesn't work. So you, gotta, you have to actually look at how this is really actually going to hit the, the world and be used to understand if, it's, um, if the theory is going to pan out or not. Yeah, definitely a good answer. I don't know how the folks at UT Dallas feel about, uh, about, about that. I, I think actually here's something that we can put another plug for UT Dallas in here, right? They have a uh, UT design, which is their capstone design program for their senior engineering and computer science majors. And at first when I heard about it, I thought, oh, okay, they've got a, you know, a couple of Raspberry Pis and some things for people to play with, you know, and they, but I, I actually toured it last, I don't know, about six months ago. And I didn't realize this, but their UT design, they've got like a hundred teams or something, all these corporate sponsors, they're working on actual engineering problems for actual companies. And then they go and compete in these global things. And so, you know, I asked, oh, okay, well, how do you do? And they're like, oh, we've won it seven out of the last eight years or something. And I was like, really? Like, who's the competition? They're like, MIT, Stanford, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, this is, uh, this is big leaps. So I think people are starting to realize this practical, practical emphasis. It was, it was there when I was in, I was, I was in undergrad about the same time you were, I think, Michael, and we had like at our senior design, you, you got some practical thing, but it wasn't, my experience was, it was like ultra focused on kind of one aspect of the discipline. It wasn't go make a medical monitoring device and figure out how to market it. Uh, you know, it wasn't that sort of thing. So um, I think there's some changes happening and that's good. But my perspective is every engineer should be a technician first, I think. Mm -hmm. You should get out and actually have to have a job where you work on things and fix real things before you go into engineering. Now, I'm not king of the world and the world's better off because of it. But, you know, I just think that practical experience is invaluable when you get out there. I mean, like if you're I would hear it all the time from the field service personnel. Oh, this engineer designed put this bolt in this place that I can't get to with a wrench. I have to take apart the entire thing. But when you're just an engineer looking at the CAD drawing, you're just thinking, where's the best place to put the bolt to handle the stress or whatever it is. 
it's the maintainability aspect that's difficult. So mm-hmm. definitely good practical experience. Yeah. Yeah. And just to put another plug in for UTD, from what I observed with my younger two, youngest two brothers going through those um, senior design project, I think they have a couple years of it. Um, it was fantastically well done. They were on some of those teams that, that did very, very well in the competitions. And so it, um, yeah, that is something that has pretty radically changed at UTD since, since I studied. Yeah, that's good. Continuous improvement. And yeah. modification. That's good. Well, let's talk about the practical side of software then. So you can't turn wrenches on software. So how do you get practical experience on, how did you get practical experience? You said you were trained as an electrical engineer and then you, you're going to work software at a corrupt company, right? So uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did that process work? Uh, yeah, they asked me to do this financial calculator that no, would take come on. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> No, I, I really think that I found that it was really useful, especially in the embedded programming side of things, having that background in electrical engineering and understanding how the, the hardware actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, the software side, things change so frequently that I feel like it was really helpful to me to have a good, solid understanding of what happens underneath whatever the current um, uh, programming language flavor of choice is that um I, I really appreciate it and i think on the job training is um, one of the best ways to go about learning something like software um, and there have been a few times where i was tackling a problem and i'd be going at it and somebody who had gotten an actual uh, software engineering degree would be like oh yeah we took a class in this and it was like oh that would have been nice to have had but in general the, the on the on the job training has seemed to work out fairly well for me on the, the software side yeah. Well, I, I, I think I can, so let's go back a little bit to, you talked about theory and engineering school being heavy on theory. And, you know, you talked about derivatives and integrals and all that sort of stuff. And you're right. I don't know if I've actually taken a derivative in quite a long time. Like, first of all, there are tools that do it for you if you need to. Um, uh, but, but I will say that understanding rate of change uh, and being able to consider that they're related to one another, accumulation, rate of change, all that stuff. It, it, has, it has formed the way that I see the world and think about the world. And then similarly, engineering school is kind of focused on there are these fundamental laws of the universe that are out there. And we claim Newton discovered them, but, you know, they were around all the time, right? There's these mathematical representations that we live in an ordered universe. And so engineers are trained to look at the order of the universe and find a way that you can use that order to solve some problem. Uh, or hopefully you're helping someone. You could also use it like the guy at your other company to engineer something that harms someone, right? You know, that, that's possible too. But So that's the engineering frame of thinking, right? And I'm not a, a software guy particularly, but I hang around a lot of people. So I'm going to speak for them without their permission, right? Um, you're right. Their world, they're, I think more akin to poets than to engineers because they get to make the rules of their world, right? Mm -hmm. They get to imagine, you talked about selecting architectures and you talked about, you know, the, the changes that are rapidly happening in software. Nobody's coming up with a new version of Newton's first law pretty regularly, right? 
you know, it, it's pretty fit. I mean, Einstein comes around and says, well, if you go really fast, theoretically, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, there's some modification, but, but new ways of doing software are changing. Literally, they're coming out every day, right? So the, the, the classes you took in, in college, right? That general thinking might be applicable for software, right? But you'd miss out on, was Python even around when you, when, when you did your stuff? Uh, probably not, right? Uh, I don't remember messing with it. So yeah, probably not. So there's, they, they re, get to remake their world all the time. So it's a different, it's a different thing. And I really have a lot of respect for engineers who go into software because you are, as you said, bringing that ordered universe thinking into this, if I call it a poetic world and, you, and you're connecting them to the real world. Right. And I've got friends who think the best software folks are ones who come from an engineering or classically trained engineers, right? Because they, they can connect those two. Um, now you could argue about that and what does best mean and all that sort of stuff. But I, I'm a, I'm a real fan of that. There is a difference. There is a big difference. So let's talk now as well about differences, or I'd like to ask you about differences in the way software was developed at, let's say your, the telecom company, I think you worked at like a, a, a fintech uh, as well, right? Mm -hmm. So the way software might be developed in that way, as opposed to the way it might be developed for a defense application or a, a safety application. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So from, I think every um, area kind of has their focus. And so in the telecom, they were talking about five nines of reliability. And you actually have to do a lot of the fairly rigorous um, processes that were needed in the DOD side in order to get five nines of reliability. Um, and then obviously on the, the fintech side, you're messing with people's money. And so generally people aren't super happy with money just disappearing because there's a software bug. So there actually is some overlap of the, um, the, the pr procedures that need to be gone through in order to make sure that the software is reliable and is going to do what it's supposed to do. Um, pretty much every time you can, you can mess up, um, very, very infrequently without getting into a lot of trouble for it. And so um, I, one thing I did see is like doing GUI work, the, the design of the graphical user interface, as opposed to the backend work. There's just a, the, the, the idea when you're looking at a GUI is just try it, see if it works. It, it actually is much faster to try it, prototype, say, no, I don't like this. Let's change this and go through the iterations of just recreating it than it is to go through that rigorous design um, uh, procedure and, and lay everything out with architecting it and then design it and all the requirements and the different levels of testing. Frequently, um, it works better on the GUI side just to try it and see how it works and then try it again and try it again. Um, so I'd say there's a pretty big difference there, but it, it really does on the safety side, I uh, feel like come down to doing good, solid um, safety engineering and not skipping steps, um, going through and um, documenting everything so that when it's time to uh, certify the software, it's all laid out exactly how everything was done, all the key decisions um, down the, the V and then back up again on the other side doing testing at each level. So I think the, the 
the difference between like a safety related software and a non-safety related is a non-safety related. You can just dive in and write it and try it and um, see how it works and then modify it. Whereas the other, you really have to take a big step back and look at it from a high level and lay everything out and plan it from the beginning. And obviously there's things that'll have to change throughout the process, but I feel like in my mind, that's a, a key distinction between the two different safety and non-safety related. I think you're right. And I'm going to put Steven on the spot here. If that's, is that okay, Steven? Yeah, right. let's see it. So, so Michael talked about five nines of reliability. So that's like what one in a million failures or something like that. Right. And that correlates to our probability of failure on demand or, or what have you in the safety world. Right. So, so let me ask you a question on, on, Hardware, the way you understand something's reliability or you predict something's reliability is you can test it, right? You can take a sample of 100 switches and run them through cycle tests until they fail, fail and then get some understanding. Okay, it's probably going to last this long until it fails or what have you, right? But on software, it's a little different. So here's my pop quiz question for you, Stephen. So software in itself is tautological, right? You've made a world and you've put through this logic into this software code. And if it's logically coherent, how reliable should that code be? Yeah. Um, I want to bring up what we learned, Michael, actually in the 61508 class in terms of testing software is you've got these systematic faults that are reduced through, you know, good practice. And like you said, documentation and all that. Um, however, random faults in software. Uh, I think the main software one that comes to mind is these, I think they're called soft errors. Um, these switches in the hardware that, um, that affect the actual software themselves, right? And say, no, the software was supposed to work this way, but because of this soft error, um, which is a change in the hardware that can come from, um, magnetic pulses and, and other things, right. That affect the software. Um, the software didn't work as coded. Uh, so those are like the random faults that come to mind that you just have to take into account for. Yeah. I, well, that's a very good answer, Stephen, because you let us, you, you took us to where we should be going next. Right. So theoretically that software by itself as the poet wrote it is, should, work. should be a perfectly reliable. Yeah, it's 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 like a mathematical proof, right? It 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 is right, but then you've actually got to put it onto hardware for it to do something, and that's where the problem comes in. And I I see that as a disconnect between the way the broader software development world works and the way safety software development works. So so in a, a you know a popular thing would be like for instance agile product development in a software environment. So I could wax poetic on, on what it means, but I don't know, Michael, do you want to take a shot about describing the agile software development process and from your perspective and experience? Yeah, I, I really appreciate a lot of the key tenants. Um, in my opinion, one of the key tenants of agile is having the software engineer, um, having pretty constant communication with the customer such that the, um, the highest priority to the customer is what actually gets implemented. I think there's some stats that are um, pretty crazy to me that the software systems, when they're the beginning, the requirements, 
like only 20 to 30% of them actually get implemented um, because there's usually budget um, overruns. And so you just cut out the stuff that's not done. And so one of the key tenets of Agile, in, in my opinion, is prioritizing such that when you only get 30% of your project complete, it's the most important 30%. Um, and so that I think is a really um, helpful uh, key tenant of, of Agile, but it's also reactive. So there'll be a, a short um, duration where you work on a certain um, piece of the, the puzzle for a certain amount of time. And then the next highest priority one, you just kind of focus on that. And the idea there is there's less context switching. Um, and it's not just every time uh, the customer says, hey, I want to tweak this thing that you did two weeks ago. And so it just turns into a constant um, uh, rewriting the software. It kind of it enables the engineers to focus for a shortened, short period of time and then refocus again on the next highest priority chunk of the work. Yeah, I think that's very well said. It, so all development processes are appropriate for a particular case, right? So for instance, Agile, if you are in an environment where you need to get product out quickly, because if you don't, someone else will, and then you won't have the market share. So think about like, a, like an app for a phone, right? If you come up with an idea, this was popular 10 years ago. I don't know if, if apps are really profitable anymore. Everybody was into it, right? You know, if you come up with an idea for a new app, you've got to get it out quickly because probably in the 8 billion people that are in the world, somebody else has that same idea. And if you wait, then they'll release it. And then you'll be the second one or the third one and you won't get the market share for it. So you've got to push it out there. But the problem is when you push it out there, if you did a traditional linear, uh, waterfall type approach to developing that thing and wanted to test it and make sure it's fully robust and everything and worked across all platforms and everything like that. It's going to take you two years to develop that thing. And by then someone's already gotten it out. Right? So the agile method allows you to say, let's build a minimum viable product. Let's push it out there. Let's see how people use it. We'll basically say that our user will be our tester and they'll report bugs to us and they'll report feature requests. And then we'll adjust those and we'll put a list of them on the wall and people will build sprints to go through and just say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take these three and you take those two and we're going to, we're going to fix these, but it's always changing because it's living and interacting with other software, which is changing. And so stuff that used to work now doesn't work anymore because so they changed something, right? Or what have you. So it, 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 that, that approach is very appropriate in some cases. But the difficulty with the safety side is you can't put something out there and say, well, we'll find <laughs> bugs in the code when it doesn't work in the real world. Because the first time it's needed, it has to work well, I won't say perfectly, but it has to work with five nines, right? It's got to work very reliably. So it's a different thing. And so I guess maybe if you could talk a, a little about what does software development look like within the context of a, of a safe, specifically a functional safety system? Yeah. Um, so ideally, the process is informed by whatever safety standard is appropriate for the specific product that one's working on. And it will it will begin at the very um, 
concept phase of the product and it will go through um, the architecture and the requirements and the design and the implementation and then testing back uh, at every level on the other side and generally the the it pretty high um, bar on the requirements for each of those steps and the peer reviews that they need to go through and the different testing that needs to be done to ensure that we're not introducing these systematic bugs into the system that are going to come back and cause huge problems uh, later on in the the product just from the expense of having to go back down the 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 waterfall or back up the waterfall to fix it at the higher um, place and then also with the safety, if, if it gets out into the, the field and has a bug that's going to cause a safety issue, um, people can die. And we obviously don't want that to happen as um, functional safety or any engineers. It's kind of our responsibility to make sure what we create doesn't cause harm. We want to do good with what we're creating. Yeah, definitely. And that process that you just described, every time I encounter someone who develops software, and explain that to them for the first time, they groan, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, you know, basically what happens is before you write one line of code, in theory, what you're supposed to do is come up with your concept, come up with all your requirements, build your architecture, build detailed design of how the code's going to go and write all the test plans of how you're going to test that code before you do anything, before you write a single line, right? Then you sit down, you write your code, and then you go through this test, and then you release, and then wash, rinse, repeat. You do the same thing. Now, in real practice, um, it doesn't exactly work in that linear of a fashion, right? Because you're, you're going to make up, mock up little prototypes. You're going to work on little things, too, during the process of trying to develop your concept, right? You're going to do that sort of stuff. But the, it is definitely a hyper-controlled release environment where... You're, it is uh, tested to the nines uh, before it's released to the customer and released out into the world. Uh, and that's, that's difficult for a lot of software folks. They feel like, I, I, I don't, I'm not one of them, so I can't say how they feel, but it, it seems like the shackling them, right? I could go so much faster. I could do so much more if I didn't have to do all of this stuff. And if I didn't have to write all this documentation that proves that I did it right. So. Yeah. Yeah, it turns into a lot of um, folks go into software because they like to write code. And so you tell them, hey, the majority of your job's actually going to be creating graphs and documents and requirements. And the only a, a, a small chunk of it's going to be writing code. And that that's obviously frustrating. If my, if my first love was coding, then, oh, my goodness, I've got to spend a lot of time doing other stuff. I feel like it's also a pretty hard swallow for... Um, and management to hear that because it does increase the cost of the software fairly significantly um, by adding in each one of those steps. I think in the long term it reduce it it's a, a wash or maybe even cheaper, but in the in the short term it becomes more expensive to produce um, software following that V model, especially in safety critical applications. Um... I want to ask Stephen a question too. Like Stephen, you, you've done some work with software documentation in the past, right? Yes. And and you've been the systems engineering guy, the documentation guy. And I'm going to ask you to bear your soul a little bit here. What would you say you think the perception is of the documentation systems engineering guy by the quote unquote coders? 
the developers? Yeah, I would say the coders will look at the systems engineer who's documenting the requirements and the architecture used and all that um, as not as necessary as the per, as themselves, not as necessary as the one developing the software, which in a sense, they have a point. They're the ones developing this, you know, they're the ones building the product for the, for the client. Um, but I mean, to bring it back from a functional safety standpoint, in order to prove that we've eliminated our systematic faults, we, we need that documentation. The code is useless without documentation, like without actually documenting our processes, you can have the best code in the world, but it's useless. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's two how questions, right? One is how do we make the code? And the second one is how do we trust the code? And since you can't go do a cycle tests on this thing, like you can a switch or something, right? The only way is to say, well, here's the process that we followed to develop the code. Here's the process that we followed to test the code. Here's the process we have in place for change management for the code. So you could develop perfect, flawless, wonderful, maybe you're a savant, you're, you're a genius, right? You, you can develop perfect, flawless code, but you can't trust it because no one else can look at it and say, oh, it's, it's logically sound. And then as soon as you flash that onto hardware, how do you know that errors haven't been introduced during that, uh, right? That, th those are the questions. So it's two different questions and two different values that they bring. Yes, the coders, nothing would happen without the coders, right? Uh, that's just a fact, right? But you couldn't trust it without the work that you've been doing. Yeah, and as we, like, the systems engineer becomes so important as you look at the whole system, right? Not just the software, but like you said, introducing software with hardware, all of a sudden new errors are introduced, as well as software with software, right? We talked about how software can mm -hmm. interact with other software. The systems engineer, you know, by definition of the job is one who looks at the system, the entire thing. Um, and so that value is increased as you increase the complexity and increase uh, different realms and hardware and software and all that. Yeah, definitely. Really is a symbiotic relationship between the system um, engineer and each of the different disciplines. And uh, the better we can do to understand that so that the system engineers don't look down on the software engineers and vice versa, so that the software engineers aren't looking down on the system engineers. And we really see it as we're working hand in hand and both sides are necessary to produce a high quality product that does good. Um, I think that that's a really important piece of it. Yeah, it's totally true. And, and, Systems engineers get a bad rap a lot of times. The nature of their job makes them behave in a way that sometimes make people not like them, right? <laughs> There's personality <laughs> issues too that go into it. But if, you know, if Stephen, if your job is to run a test campaign against a set of code that someone's written, to do a code review or to do something, your job is to point out flaws and errors and things that could go wrong and use cases where it doesn't work, right? Now, remember if I say that this software developer is like a poet, right? They basically showed up to the open mic night, read their poem, and now you're saying, uh, "Oh well, here's what's wrong with it." You're the you're the art critic in the in the stands, right? You know, or in the audience, and and that's a you know you have to be aware that like it's different. Like if I think this is another difference between how engineers and software folks handle things. If you show a design from an engineer to somebody, and you walk up, somebody says, "Oh yeah, this is good, but look at this right here." Did you mean for it to do that? The engineer will bluster a little, but if they, once they see the problem, most of them can't help but 
try and solve it, even even if they don't like you for finding it. Like it, they can't. Have, but the but I've but I think there's a little bit more of the artist mentality from the developer side because they're basically like one of them told me one time software code only comes out of my mind. So when you critique my code, you're critiquing my mind, right? Like it, like it's a direct, it's my thoughts that you're critiquing, right? So it's a little bit more personal. Uh, so I think we owe it as well to remind ourselves that it's, it, it's a, it's a pretty vulnerable thing to be a coder. Now they'll all look at me and laugh and tell me, oh, whatever, touchy feely, you know, that sort of stuff. But then they'll go back to their basements um, and they'll, uh, and, and they'll know yeah. that it's true. When I critique, uh, <laughs> our software developers codes, I'm always very gentle. <laughs> I affirm them. And you know, I do like an affirmation sandwich. I do like affirm, critique, affirm. Like. <laughs> From years of experience, it doesn't feel gentle. <laughs> oh yeah. I guess I didn't think about it. We have, I've been trying to represent developer guys and we have one on the, on the so what's it like when you to sit through a code review is something that you've written with somebody who doesn't who wasn't writing it with you yeah i think from my training and wiring i'm really critical on everything including myself so i tend to take people being critical with my code a little better than um some other folks that i've worked with in the past but yeah it's it's hard because like you said, it is more of an art. And so I think that the way I solved that was a really good way to solve it. And you're coming in and saying, no, it should be solved in a different way. And I can see pluses and minuses, but it seems like a wash in my brain. So why are you telling me I need to change that um, solution? So yeah, it is, it's hard to swallow. Yeah. And there's some things that are hard as well. Like, I like how you said there's multiple ways to write the poem or to solve the problem or to do it right. But the systems engineer may come back and say, okay, yeah, you solved it in that way. But if you solved it that way and it's okay, it's computationally, computationally efficient enough to solve it for once, but what if we have to solve it a million times a minute, right? Then, then maybe we don't have enough hardware to actually do that. And so therefore the way you solved it, it works, but it won't work at scale, right? And that, that's the, that's the interplay that has to happen. Right. Yeah. And that's the, that's the really hard part about doing good software requirements, because as a software developer, I would say, well, why didn't you tell me about that requirement at the beginning? Because then I would have architected it differently. And so, yeah, it's just that interplay of needing to make sure that communication of understanding from my perspective as a software developer, what is this piece of code actually going to be doing in the overall system? And with that understanding, then all of a sudden, oh yeah, it does make sense. I've got to make this really efficient because it has to be done thousands of times a second. I can't make it take a second to do this job. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's another thing that happens. The telephone game, right? User says this to the product manager, product manager says this to the systems engineer, systems engineer says this to the code person. And by the time the code person writes it, they're thinking, oh, I've got to write this code that's got to, it's got to run, you know, a thousand times a second. It's got to do all this and it's got to do all that. But really the use case, no, that's going to run once a day, you know. <laughs> so so you could, it could go the other way too, where you've over-designed this thing. You've pulled an all-nighter to make it work in a mathematically beautiful way. And everybody's like, oh, why'd you do it that way? You didn't need that, right? You know, so this problem of communication is hard. It's like the video, I saw a video the other day of, you know, there's a bunch of people and 
the first person's drawing with their finger on the back of the second person, and they're drawing a picture, and then the second person draws what they think the first person drew on their back on there, right? And, it, the, and then the caption was, you know, user to product manager to coder, and then the coder draws something that was not even close to what the user actually wanted. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard, and that's the systems engineer's role is to be standing to the side of all those people who are drawing on their backs and say, no, here's actually what you're supposed to be doing, everybody's piece, and how it fits with everyone else. The interface interfaces are really important. Mm. So, okay, good. I'm going to change topics and, 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 and switch to something that I didn't give Michael advance warning about. Uh-oh. Uh, so this is a dangerous one. I'm going to say <laughs> a buzzword now, and... I want you to cringe a little when I say the buzzword, and then I want us to actually have a conversation about it, right? So if I said artificial intelligence, um, you're not cringing yet. <laughs> a lot of jokes are coming to my mind right now. <laughs> uh, so whatever is passing for artificial intelligence, AI, ML, deep neural networks, whatever, convolutional neural networks, you know, support vector machines, all, the, all this kind of stuff, right? It's all software, right? A lot of it's linear algebra based. So I'm glad you took classes past calculus because uh, (laughs) it's become very important right now. But um, I want to talk a little bit about AI in safety systems Mm -hmm. and how that works. We've had a guest, uh, one or two guests on before to talk a little bit about it. But I'd like to talk like really practically, how would, is it possible even under the current uh, v model approach to get a AI or ML safety system certified. Does it even work? Mm. I feel like you're you're probably the expert on this call and on that subject. But um, from from my perspective, um, currently AI the the code itself is not at a place where we could actually certify it. Um, my understanding is that the the industry is creating some um, yeah. uh, uh, standards that would allow companies to take a look at that and understand and architect their code um, carefully in such a way that they would be able to get that certified. But right now, one of the best ways to do that is something really important, in my opinion, when it comes to um, safety-related code, and that's architecting it in such a way that it's you're really careful about how much code you allow to be safety-related, and you try and keep that as small a percentage of the code as possible because of the expense that we talked about for actually creating this code and getting it certified. So I think there's there's several really clever architectures that are being thought up and currently implemented um, today where they basically take some of that code that's really hard to certify today. And I think in a few years, it will not be. I think we'll come up with ways. I think we'll come up with tools. We'll come up with hardware that will enable us to do that. Um, but right now, I think there's some really clever ways to architect the system such that the, the key parts of the system that prevent the the system from doing dangerous things are left in that safety um, related code section that can be certified. And then that more AI, the part of the code that's really difficult to certify today is left out of that um, uh, purview. So that would be my take, but you're definitely the expert in the room. So you can clean up any messes I just made. 
it's a pretty small room, so uh, <laughs> to, to call me an expert would be a stretch. But I've I've dabbled a little in it. But I think I think you hit exactly on it. The current way that we explain trustworthiness that Stephen explains trustworthiness of the software that the team has developed is through its explainability, right? We explain explicitly uh, how the software works logically, uh, how it was developed. And, and the way we say you can trust the software is basically we've followed a V model approach. We've documented it, we've tested it, and we know how it works. We know how it works. For AI ML systems, you fundamentally can't look inside under the hood, right? It's like when you and your dad are working on a car, if inside there was some tesseract looking thing that somehow made the car move, but you couldn't actually open it up and look at what's going on inside. There's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's unexplainable and it's not exactly deterministic. You're not always gonna get the same answer every time you put something in. So even the way we run some of our diagnostic tests, if I send you a message, you should send me this exact message back, right? May not work as well on it. So um, there's some problems there, but they're not insurmountable problems. And there's a lot of really smart people in the world working on how do we get to trustworthiness of AI systems? Part of it is kind of this hybridish approach that you just talked about, Michael, like, well, maybe we have part of the system that is explainable. And then that's the part we certified. And then we get the benefit of the other system that perhaps isn't explainable, but is uh, proven enough that we can trust it in some level, right? So it's, it's an architecture question. So uh, I think you answered it well. Excellent. Well, uh, we've been going for about an hour now, so I think what I'd like to do is ask you a final question in closing. Um, and it's a question that I asked, I've asked most of the people who come on. We're a safety podcast. Uh, we like to focus on the importance, as you said earlier, of being an engineer who knows the impact. I'm putting something out in the world. I should know that I've done my due diligence to design it in a way that it's not going to harm people in a way that I could foresee. Right. But we're named safety third for a reason. The first thing is you got to figure out, can I technically solve this problem? Second thing is you got to figure out, can I pay for solving this? Can, is somebody going to pay to get it to happen? And the third thing you got to figure out, can we do it safely? Right. So that's kind of why we're called safety third, but we're also safety third because I know not every safety person lives what I would call a safe life. So I'd like to ask you if you wouldn't mind, uh, what is the most dangerous thing that you've ever done? Yeah, so I think I've done some dangerous things that I would probably do again. Um, but one dangerous <laughs> thing that I've done <laughs> that I would not do again is I was in my mid-teens and I always loved animals growing up. And it was a thunderstorm going on in DFW. And for those who have lived in DFW, that's it's intense. It's for real thunderstorm. I think in our time of being here in Spain, we've had one mild thunderstorm, what I would consider mild thunderstorm in the entire time. So just DFW is pretty famous for its thunderstorms. And there was a, a mouse swimming around in the pool, because if you've lived in DFW, you probably had a pool in the backyard as well. So I figured I would go run out and grab the basket. Um, and at this point, there was like standing water in the yard because it was raining so hard. And it, I think it was in the summer, so the ground was rock hard and wasn't absorbing anything. So I ran out, grabbed the basket, this metal pole, and I start running towards the pool. 
and there is a massive lightning strike close and i felt the like the electricity running through me so one of the tracers went through me and i needless to say i abandoned the the chase of the mouse it went back in i'm thankful to still have a beating heart and i will not do that one again if i remember not to anyways so safety advice from michael Fasolino: in a thunderstorm do not run out into the thunderstorm with a giant metal pole <laughs> bare feet in a puddle of water. <laughs> yeah. Now I got to ask about this mouse. Uh, were you trying to rescue the mouse, or were you trying to exterminate the mouse, or or did you not even have a plan that far yet? <laughs> I think I just wanted the mouse in my um, captivity. I can't remember what I was oh. going to do with it. Whether I was going to try and tame it, I frequently was trying to tame animals that couldn't be tamed as well, and ended up having a, my fingertip bit off or scratched off more than once doing that okay so you were going out to like rescue it and make it your pet a little bit right i think so that's probably what the logic was going on at the time i think i found your underlying fear of small animals and small rodents (laughs) there's only one type of animal that i the small animal that i i have a fear of and steven you that you can share if you would like He's he's scared of chihuahuas. Chihuahuas? Oh yeah, that's <laughs> no. Which I'm realizing sense. is just based out of this uh, this underlying trauma of of small rodents biting his fingers. So, so in addition to mowing lawns for um, ten plus years, I took care of pets. All the neighbors had me take care of their pets while they were on vacation, and I took care of many many dogs. And I was bit a couple times by dogs throughout that period. And every time they were chihuahuas, I was never bit by another race of dogs. So, yeah. Yeah. I'll have to say, uh, (laughs) Stephen, I know you, I know you like chihuahuas and all that, but man, they can stay at your apartment. Okay. (laughs) That's all I got. Like, uh, I, 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 uh, yeah. Anyway, you know, I think they're just doing what they were bred to do because I think they were supposed to be dogs that lived on your roof. And if you ever travel around, certain parts of the world people will keep dogs on the roof like permanently like not not like just temporarily like the dog lives up its whole life up there and they're an alarm system so somebody comes they bark they do that right and i think that's kind of what a chihuahua was for we've turned it into something else you know but uh so anyway now i know now i know i didn't know you were an animal lover michael actually yeah i do i, I enjoy animals a lot that's good that's good well cool well thanks for talking with us um, uh, today about software and, and more importantly, just about you and your life. So it's been great having you on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Michael.